Welcome to a very special edition of the Tudor Travel Show. So if you've been listening to the show on a regular basis, you know that normally oh, I do one show every month. But this month, the month of July, we're going to have an extra special show. Now, I was recently invited by royal appointment to meet with His Majesty King Henry VIII at what remains of his Priory of St John in Clerkenwell. This was once a great religious institution, as you will hear in this podcast. But I so enjoyed my visit and tour of the buildings that I had to go back and find out even more. This time I was to meet with museum director Tom Folkes and we set about exploring just what remains of the Priory buildings, finding out all about its history and some of the fascinating artefacts that are on display in the museum. And so we'll head straight over to the museum in a moment and just to say that we'll be breaking up our tour with some wonderful Tudor music which will help us along the way. So let's get ready to time travel and enjoy your own personal guided tour of St John's Museum, Clerkenwell in London. So here I am at the Museum of St John in Clerkenwell, which is a real hidden gem and I'm really excited to be here today and explore this place with our guide. So Tom, hello and welcome to the Tudor Travel Show and thank you for having us here today. Well, thank you for coming. So um, I'm the director here at the museum, so it's my privilege to look after these rather wonderful buildings and all the collections. Great. Um, so I'm happy to help. Really. So we're going to really have a look around today and um, have a look at what remains here but also find out about the history of the place and what St John's was like in its Tudor zenith before it was dissolved by Henry VIII in 1540. But before we get into all of that detail and maybe look at some of the, kind of the treasures that you've got here, perhaps you could tell us just briefly about the background. What is this place and how did it come into being? Yeah, of course. So um, you would have noticed on your way here, you have St John's Gate, St John's Square, St John's Lane, St John's Street. There's a fairly strong St John presence in Yes, Clarkenwell. I did notice. Um, and that, and there are also some very strangely named streets like sort of Brisette Street and um, Albemarle Way, which all have relationships to this building. But yeah, the reason why we're here, you can now see this massive gatehouse in Clerkenwell, which many people think is one of the city gates, um, which would not be absolutely ridiculous, um, but is wrong. So um, mm. the reason why we're here is because of the Order of St. John, which was a religious military organization. It was founded in Jerusalem in the 11th century. And from that basis, it spread throughout Europe and um, had these various buildings all over the place. And this one just here was their London headquarters, essentially. So this was the entrance to their um, London headquarters, which was a precinct of buildings. And they then had properties throughout Britain. And this was the sort of the centre where all of the, the wealth from all those lands that was farmed and various bits and bobs that was going on all came through London to then be pushed 
over to Jerusalem to support their work in ideally maintaining Jerusalem as a Christian stronghold, but also their caring work. So the Knights of St. John, the Knights Hospitaller, the Order of St. John, the Knights of Malta, they're all the same people, just different names for the same thing. But the key word there is Hospitaller. Mm -hmm. And they had this caring role. They set up a hospice in Jerusalem to care for sick pilgrims. And that caring role followed throughout their entire history right up to the present day with St. John Ambulance, which is the modern charitable output of the Order of St. John. I see, I see, I see. Because it's a strange order, isn't it? It's sort of quasi-religious, quasi-military. Yeah, and as you said earlier as well, the 1540, there was a break. So the original Hospitaller Order and then the Venerable Order today, they're two distinct organisations. The Venerable Order... This Anglican order that we have today was established in the 19th century, but alludes back to that first history. So its work today as a caring St. John Ambulance charity is inspired by that first work. Okay. Right, well, thank you for that background. So maybe just to give a bit of a sort of geographical location, I mentioned that we're in Clerkenwell. So can you just give people an idea of where that is in London and where indeed it was in relation to Tudor London? Because we were outside the city walls, weren't we? Yes, exactly. So you've got the... Clerkenwell is just north of the city, so we're about 10 minutes' walk directly north of St Paul's Cathedral, which hopefully locates people today as to where we are. Mm. Um, But you're right, back in the Tudor period, London was a walled city, and then Clerkenwell, you're about five, five, ten minutes' walk from that walled city. It was just sort of south of Smithfield Market, which is just south of where we are in Clerkenwell today. So here, Clerkenwell comes from Clark's Well. So there was fresh water here. It was where Clarks apparently used to meet and mystery plays were performed, so quite a nice green area. You're on high ground here. The Fleet River, tributary of the Thames, would have run down what are now Blackfriars um, train tracks. So you're in a good location here. Mm. You're you know, commutable distance from the city, mm. fairly quiet, fresh water, high ground, fresh air, all quite nice. Yeah, really good. I remember reading a quote once about the Charterhouse, which is not far from no, here, no. is it? And there was a letter from uh, one of the residents of Charterhouse Square saying how much they enjoyed their property there because it was out of the press of the city. Exactly, exactly. And all the filth and the disease. And yeah. So, a very nice location for this major quasi religious um, military uh, order here. Yeah. Uh, and, and as you say, the headquarters really yeah. for the organisation in, in England at the time. And by the time that the order was dissolved, this was a really grand suite of buildings. So, as you said, you had the Charter House that was just sort of southeast of here, there was the nunnery of St. Mary, which was just sort of Northwest. So there were these religious, and then you've got Old St. Bart's as well. So there were all these religious communities around here kind of doing their thing just outside the city, all quite pleasant, very, very smart. And there are accounts where when foreign royals and various dignitaries came to London, they would sometimes stay here at the Priory rather than stay in the royal palaces because it was more luxurious, frankly, to be here. And there's an an engraving of these drawings that was done by Wingard, Mm. um, the Mm. Wingard panorama. And um, so you can see these buildings from Southwark, just south of the river. And the the priory buildings in Clerkenwell were on a comparative scale to the old St Paul's Cathedral, the one that burnt down, which was massive. So that gives you an idea again of how grand they were that here. That really does give you an idea of scale, because it was an enormous cathedral yeah. in its time. And we have fragments of stone in the museum collections here that show from the original buildings where there's been you know, loads of 
archaeological digs and whatever else. And they have the original paint schemes and the carving. And it was really decorative and really, really smart. And also bits of Tudor friezes. So Nonsuch Palace, you know, yes. the, the fabby one that's now gone, mm. um, had all that amazing terracotta work done mm. by, I think there were Italians who were shipped in mm -hmm. to do it. Well, we have comparative bits here. So again, this building had all the sort of the latest decor. Yeah. It's very nice indeed. Very so, cool. And considering you've got these knights who were taking vows of poverty, you know, it does, I, it always, yeah. it's an irony to me that they lived in such fine style. Yes, um, indeed. I think that's quite amusing. Absolutely. And so, you know, we started talking about how it was used by royalty and it was visited by Tudor royalty, yes. wasn't it? Yes. Who, who, who came here? Well, actually, when, the, um, when it was dissolved, Mary Tudor briefly used these buildings as a palace. So again, that gives an in interesting sort of narrative to that history. And then, I mean, it starts right from the beginning. So um, in 1185, um, the then Grand Master of the Order came here to petition King Henry II for support with maintaining Jerusalem as Christian stronghold. So from that point onwards, there were all these royal connections. Yeah. And um, the prior who built this gate, so the prior is the head of the order, effectively, mm -hmm. in England, and Thomas Dockra, um, who, I mean, he didn't build St John's Gate himself, but he, <laughs> he arranged for it to be built. Exactly. Um, and Thomas Dockra travelled with Henry VIII to the Field of the Cloth of Gold as a diplomat. So there's a... a strong link yeah. between... Royalty exactly. and the order. And um, Robert Hales, who um, led the... Sorry, what Tyler, who led the Peasants' Result. Oh. Robert Hales was the then um, prior here. And he was also... Um, effectively, he was Chancellor of the Exchequer, Lord High Treasurer. That was the title at the right. time. Okay. And, um, I mean, he was a bit unfortunate. He was beheaded, so it didn't work out well for him. But, um, again, having that role in terms of his relationship to royalty, there was always this really, really close link because the Order of St. John was so influential, was so wealthy, was such a massive landowner and was doing all this hospitaler work too. So, I mean, it was doing a really mm. vital public role mm. as well as being, you know, this big religious order. That's great. Now we understand a little about the background and the history of the Priory, what would be really fun is to go and try and reimagine what the buildings were like. And of course, some of the buildings still survive, so maybe we could pop outside yes, and have a course. look. Yes, of course. Yeah, sure. So, we are out on the streets of London now, and um, it's a typical rainy English day, isn't it, <laughs> Now, I was wondering um, if you could help me reimagine, if I was here in the 16th century, what would I have been seeing? Because at the moment, we're standing under the archway of the inner gatehouse. Yes. And looking towards where the outer gatehouse would have yes, been. Yes, exactly. So we're looking south, effectively. So we're looking down towards where the city walls would be. And actually, if you're a bit higher up now, I know it's Wren, so it's a bit late, but you can see the Dome of St Paul's from here. So it's not, it's really not that far away. And at the bottom of St John's Lane, so probably maybe 500 metres, I'm not very good with judging these things, there would have been a practical gatehouse. So a smaller gatehouse, but that would have actually been properly, I don't think defensive would have necessarily been necessary, but it would have stopped people coming in and out. Yeah. And then St John's Gate that's here today would have been the sort of grand ceremonial entrance to the Priory buildings. So there may have been you know, a few outer precinct buildings along St John's Lane, but nothing that important. 
So you would come up St John's Lane and then you'd be confronted by this massive stone building. It's actually St John's Gate is built of brick and then it's got this stone facing. Oh, I see. And um, yes, as I said, it looks like a kind of child's drawing of a castle, essentially. And it's very odd because you've got all these 20th century buildings around it. And St John's Gate looks quite sort of toy town scale, but yeah. it's actually, it's five stories high. It's just because everything around it is much bigger. Yeah. So you don't get an impression, a, a correct sense of how big it is. And the ground level here has come up by about four feet. Oh, so wow. now That's St. John's... Lot, yeah, it, it is. It is a lot, isn't it? And on the north side of the square, you can see a door lintel, which now looks like an odd fireplace, but it's actually because the ground has come up I so much. I so, did and I thought, gosh, that's a diddy doorway. Yeah, but that's because the ground level has come up so much. <gasps> that so sense. that has made it all seem a bit odd. So, um, yeah, you'd have this massive building, and they're on the... Um, left-hand side of the gate you can still see there's a little metal knob that comes out of the wall and that's yes. the upper hinge of gates that would have gone across so again it, it's in a funny place now because the grounds come up by four feet but originally that's there would have incredible. been gates across the front so then you'd come into St John's Gate go through under the arch and there'd probably be I don't know some sort of sentry or whoever there and you'd come into the precinct of St John's Square so the whole of St John's Square, which is this long, thin rectangle, today it's completely ruined because Clerkenwell Road was cut through in the 1870s, so you don't get a sense of what the square was. But pre-1870, it was this long, thin square. The southern entrance into it would have been St John's Gate. On the north side is Jerusalem Passage, again, a reference to Jerusalem and the Order of St John, which would have been a very, just a walkway. You couldn't have got, you couldn't have got vehicles through there and that would have been covered on the north side, but all around the square would have been priory buildings, so religious buildings, but also administrative buildings, you know, dormitories, accommodation, the prior's grand house, which was on the north side of the square. So all of that was all around here. It would have looked a bit like an Oxford or a Cambridge college. Right. That's the sort yes. of thing that you would have been coming yes. into. So yes. it would have been very sort of smart and lovely and quite sort of quiet and peaceful. Mm. And there would have been a, you know, a garden here and that kind of stuff too, and laundries, all that kind of, everything that you'd have. And today, actually in, the Zeta Townhouse, which is a very swanky cocktail bar and hotel on the other side of the square. If you go down into their loos, you can see the original walls of the Priory. And some of the other buildings around the square also have um, sort of the original Tudor vaults below I and things. See. So there's above ground, it's all very 19th and 20th century, but below ground, there are still some of those things. Some still of those so what can people see today? And we're going to go a little exploring a little bit in the gate, and I think we need to get out of the rain <laughs> in a minute because it's getting heavier. But what can people see today? There's the gatehouse and also the crypt yes. as well. So um, visitors, if they come, they can see all the museum galleries, um, which are open 10 to 5, Monday to Saturday, and are very interesting, Sundays in the summer. And you can come on a guided tour. It's really worth coming on a guided tour day, which are Tuesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays, because you see this building is surprisingly big. And then you'll see all of the upstairs rooms, which are, some are Tudor, some are much later, but still very, very beautiful and interesting. And then the crypt and the church on the north side of the square, the crypt dates from the 12th century. It was begun in the 1140s, consecrated in 1185. So it's a really rare survival for a building that's still being used for its original purpose. So shall we go and have a look at yeah, it and let's get, get out of the yeah. rain? <laughs> okay.
soaking wet. We're sort of soaking, aren't we? Um, but we are now in the church. Well, it's a more modern church, isn't it? But this was the site of the original Priory Church. Yes, it sort of is and it isn't. So, um, the, as I say, there was a round nave church that was here originally, and that was begun in the 1140s. Then sometime in the 14th century, that round nave church was um, knocked down and then rebuilt in a sort of international Gothic style, I suppose, what was fashionable at the time. Yeah. And um, then it was changed and altered and grew and various building additions were done to it um, right up until um, the 1940s, 1941, when the church was bombed during the Blitz. Okay. So that destroyed pretty much everything above ground bar the outside walls. Uh -huh. And then there was... Uh, um, quite a sort of modest um, redevelopment of the building which created what you see today so that's why it's quite odd it's this strange cream cube um, yeah. there was quite limited money to pay to do anything so it had this quite simple approach and today the building functions effectively as a private chapel for the order of St John so the Order of St John's Church services are held here and investitures of people who are being made members of the Order. The Order is a Royal Order of Chivalry. So those services take place here. And then there are occasional weddings and parties and conferences and all the kind of usual things that happen in a big building. Yeah. So, so I mean, as you say, it's quite a rectangle. It's yeah. sort of a square box. There's some rather Gothic looking windows, but are they later replacements uh, in sort terms of, of. The, or, or any aspects of the walls that we see original? Well, you can see that some of the stonework is really, really rough. And that is part of the original walls. And the location of some of the windows, so the windows that are on the east wall. There is an engraving by Wenceslas Holler that was done in the second half of the 17th century. Really frustratingly, there are no detailed drawings of these buildings pre-dissolution. Mm -hmm. So we don't know for accurate what they look like. Mm -hmm. But that Holler engraving, these buildings, unlike some others, weren't systematically destroyed at the dis dissolution. They were put to different use. Some bits were taken off to do other stuff with. but. Um, there wasn't you know, a mass destruction. Mm. And the church here became um, a private chapel for um, one of the families who moved into St John's Square. So actually the Earls of, it was the Cecil family, so oh, Burley House. Right, but yeah, um, yeah, the Burleys, yeah. And um, in that hollow engraving, you can see the windows of the east wall. So although this is 19th century tracery, it, um, replaces the stuff that was destroyed during the bombing. So the walls are in the right place, but pretty much everything else has changed. It's changed. But we have the crypt, as we were mentioning yes. before, so why don't we go down? And yeah, let's do it. Go and explore. Yeah, I love a good crypt. <laughs> <laughs> you never know what you're going to find. <laughs> it's going to get cold as well when you get down here. You can feel the temperature drop when you walk down. So you can see when you come to the bottom of the stairs, oh, yes. the wall of the round, the original round nave. Oh yes, you can. A really so, rugged, rough wall, but yes, it's yeah, a... Beautifully set off by our salvage kit, but um, <laughs> that's, that's what would have come out here. So this would have been quite like the temple church. Okay. 
they were they were actually they were consecrated at the same time. Right. So that's the sort of building that you would be looking yes. at here. And I see what you mean about the temperature drop. Yes. It suddenly got really chilly in here. Yeah, you don't want to spend that long down here actually, because yeah. it's. <laughs> so so we're, we're going down a few steps and into a very long, elongated crypt with the sort of the um, what would you call vaulting? Those? Vaulted. Thank you. A vaulted ceiling. And uh, an interesting effigy at the end. There. Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, we can go and talk about it yeah, if you like. Yeah, let's do that. So, so this, this, I guess, is is original. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, when after the dissolution, the um, church went through a variety of uses. And by the 18th century, it was being used as a second parish church for Clerkenwell. Clerkenwell's population had grown a lot by then. The city had grown outside the walls. And um, they needed it for that use. And the crypt started to be used for storing bodies, actually. Oh, really? So, yeah. And then um, at the end of the 19th century, it was cleared out. All the bodies were taken off to Brookwood Cemetery in okay. Surrey, one of those big Victorian cemeteries right. that was created, I think, for cleanliness and disease mm. and all that sort of business. And then this building was restored effectively at the end of the 19th century. But the, the, the basics were already here. Yeah. And this would have been really heavily painted. Mm. Um, some of there are entirely places, bits of the original. Because um, at the moment it's all pretty much bare stone, isn't it? Yes. Sort of lovely white, bright stone. Yes. So this would have had much more of a kind of Catholic yeah. feel to yeah. it. And we've got a very fine looking fellow here, a sort of carved. Um, alabaster. To alabaster. Yeah. And it's so. of uh, a knight, I imagine. Exactly. Well, yeah, you've spotted there is a big eight-pointed cross on his breastplate, uh, yeah, which is yeah, the giveaway. <laughs> you've learned <laughs> something. Well done. Yeah. Today. Um, so this is a Spanish knight of St. John, and he dates from um, the second half of the 16th century. So he's in the right period for the mm -hmm. Tudors. Um, and it's his page who is kneeling at his feet, and then this strange lion that looks a bit like a pug dog that yes. um, his feet are resting on. So this is known to be a Spanish Knight of St. John. It was purchased by Sir Guy Laking at the end of the 19th century. Sir Guy Laking was a royal armourer and was also a member of the Order of St. John. There were lots of very influential movers and shakers and pillars of the establishment who were members of the Order of St. John when it was founded and are today as well, mm. actually. And he bought this um, when the ethics of that sort of thing weren't such concern mm. and gave it as a gift to the Order here in England. And it was displayed here in the crypt. And the slab that it sits on, so it has this rather sort of sombre, plain stone um, tomb slab. It's pure set dressing. There is no body here. Um, and it says on the front that it is Don Juan Ruiz de Vergara, who was protector of the Longo Castile um, from 1575. That's not correct. It was thought it was correct when it was bored, um, but subsequent research has shown that that identification is wrong. We know he's a knight of St. John because he's got his eight-pointed cross on his breastplate, but beyond that, I've got no idea who he is. Right. Um, so I'm sure that further research would be able to identify this. Because that... he's in full military armour, isn't yes, he, as well? Yes, yes. I mean, he was clearly someone very important. Mm. This was sculpted by Esteban Jordan, who was sculptor to the Spanish court. So it's a really important piece of tomb sculpture. It's beautiful. It's very well made. So... And it actually came from Spain when you yeah, said from, it was... from Valladolid Cathedral that was having a big 19th century restoration and then they cleared out pieces of the tomb sculpture and sold them off. Um, yeah, I don't think that would happen these days. No, but I, don't <laughs> I don't think it would. He's a rather handsome fellow, isn't he, with some lovely curly hair. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and you can see he's got a replacement nose. Oh, um, yes. But <laughs> <laughs> Noses were always very vulnerable, yeah. weren't they? So it's, you know, it's wonderful. 
and I'm sure that if there, you know, more research would be able to reveal who he is, mm. but that just hasn't happened yet. Yeah, very so, interesting. Yeah. Good. And there's another one around the corner, oh, which there? is, this is a really interesting and useful one in oh. terms of your area. So you can see this grim looking fellow around the corner. I know what this is called. It's the Memento Mori, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so um, this is one part of what was a much larger tomb sculpture. And as you say, it's Memento Mori tomb sculpture. So you have this figure, which is supposed to represent a kind of decaying cadaver. Um, and you have his really shrunken rib cage and his horrid shrunken face. And then he's got a, fu a funeral shroud that's wrapped around him, but is pulled back to reveal his body. And now it's just plain stone. But originally, it would have all been covered in gesso and painted to look like a rotting corpse. Oh, so really delightful. And this figure would have been sort of at, almost at floor level. And then at kind of hip level, there would be a figure, a much healthier looking figure that would be on display. And the idea is to have the, the reference of life and death and how no matter how grand in life we are in death, we're all equal. Mm. Um, so that's, that's what this would have represented. And this was originally in St. James's Church, which is just north of here. And this figure represents um, Prior William Weston. So he was the prior of England who was here when Henry VIII dissolved the monasteries. Ah, so he's very pertinent to yes, our story. Yes, exactly. And um, he... Henry gave him quite civilised terms. He was given a pension, and when he was, you know, merrily persecuting various other Catholics, that was, you know, quite yes, a nice and thing to have done. some of them ended up on the gibbets. So. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, he, you know, he was doing quite well, and I think it's a, sort of an indication as well of how... Uh, sort of powerful the Order of St John was, but also how esteemed they were and how he didn't necessarily want to pick too much of a fight. They were the last, you know, the last order to be Yes, dissolved. they were the very last order, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, which I think, again, shows a sort of reluctance mm. and the complexities of what he was dealing with in terms of diplomacy. And, you know, they were on Malta. The, um, the, they were... Well, there was international... Uh, relationships involved, wasn't there? Yeah, I guess. And yeah, and you know they were an international organisation. You know you have to be. You're already choosing a battle with the Catholic Church, and do you want to do you want to pick another one? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so when he died, he was given this um, given this pension, but he died on the day that the order was dissolved. And there's this sort of romantic story about it being a broken heart. I think it's probably far more likely that it was stressed. Yes. <laughs> um, you imagine having to deal with all of that. But anyway, as a result, he couldn't be buried here because this had been dissolved. So he was given a burial in St. James's Church. And um, then in the 18th century, that church was remodelled, I think, by Gibbs, the architect architect and um, the tomb sculptures moved out they knew who it was um, but um, so it was brought back here brilliant um, but this is just the remaining part it was one part of a much yeah, grander much. tomb sculpture and you've got the picture of, of what, what that it, original tomb exactly. would have looked like in all its in all its glory but great yeah. that he's come home yeah and again his body isn't here it's just the sculpture
we've come inside now, <laughs> inside the old, uh, the, the Tudor part of the building, the gatehouse here. Yes. So, so, so tell us about the rooms that we're in at the moment, a little bit about their history and maybe some of the features. So this building was purchased by the Venerable Order, um, so this sort of this Victorian organisation in the at the end of the 19th century and when they took it over it was in a real state so they began this process of restoration really of the spaces we are now in what's called the old chancery formerly the chancery not the old one um, so this was an office essentially and the within the gate um, it's not really known exactly what these buildings were used for when this was originally built. I imagine some sort of accommodation or administrative buildings. As you can see, it's quite a big building. I mean, this room is probably, I don't know, about four metres by six metres, something yeah, so like there's that. Yes, an there's an adjacent one, isn't there? That's yeah. even bigger than that. It's almost like a little mini great hall. Yes, almost. absolutely, absolutely. So, and what you see is largely a Victorian refit in here, but there are some Tudor origins. So there are stone archways that are original and are very worn. And there's this really strange fireplace in the old chancery mm, as well. We're looking at it now, aren't we? Yeah, I'm so running this my is, hand across the stone. So this is sort of classic Tudor, really. And it's, um, it's carved from, I think it's sandstone, and it has these lovely sort of you know carved pilasters on either side and then the central sort of frieze just below the mantelpiece is of there's a, I think this is supposed to be a dog or possibly a lion and on the other side there's a deer and then there are these big cornucopia of fruit and a coat of arms in the center mm. and um you would think looking at this that this would relate to st john's gate um seeing as it's here in the building but it doesn't at all. It has no relationship to this building whatsoever. Okay. This was originally in a pub that was just down the road on St John's Lane. And before being a pub, that Tudor building was London residence of um, Sir Thomas Forster. That building was being knocked down at the end of the 19th century. And one of the first architects who was working on this building was Richard Norman Shaw, very famous arts and crafts architect. And he was also very involved in the foundation of the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings. So he knew that building was being destroyed, saw this really important piece of carved Tudor stonework, took it out of that pub and then installed it here. So now we have this really beautiful piece of stonework that relates to Clerkenwell and also shows, I suppose, what uh, a smart area this was that you've got aristocrats like him living here yeah. so you know. and, and good on that man for saving this and yeah it here. absolutely and then all the you know the architectural restoration that he's done here so you see these really lovely massive oak beams so the, there's a real sort of base of this building that is Tudor mm. and then there's this Victorian, Edwardian, Gothic feel that follows throughout. And a lot of that architecture is by this, you know, this 19th century venerable order that's a relatively modern organisation, that they want to allude to this original history of this ancient order or this religious military order and relate back to that. So there's this very sort of sombre aesthetic that follows through, throughout all the buildings to give that sense of continuity, mm. which is a really interesting story in itself. Really. Mm, mm, mm. And while we're up here, I'm sort of looking through these double doors into a, what is a great hall, but it's a later one. But there's an interesting artefact in there. Yes, isn't there? yes, there is. Um, 
That would be really good. Yeah, sure. Let's go and have a look at it. So, yes, so you come from the Tudor gatehouse into the Edwardian building. And this was built really as an extension because the order needed more space in the 19th and 20th century as it grew. Um, but we do. We have some wonderful treasures in this room. And um, as we've alluded to once or twice, the dissolution of the order in 1540. Yes. And then... Henry VIII's various children and various different roles, and eventually Mary Tudor ended up on the throne. Mm. Mary Tudor was a Catholic, married to Philip II of Spain, mm. get the right one. Mm. And um, when she took over the throne, she revived the Order of St. John. And what we have here on display is Mary Tudor's charter reviving the order, so the front page of the charter. The other pages aren't as exciting, um, or actually letters patents, to be exact. Um, and you have the massive P for Philip, which seems a bit unfair, rather than an M for Mary. And within the P is a lovely illustration of Mary Tudor and Philip II. And then you have the Tudor rose on the right and the pomegranate of Spain on the left. It's and in all those beautiful colours, isn't it? The reds and the blues and the golds. Yeah. And, and the, I, I really love this little picture of as you say, Philip and Mary enthroned, sitting side by side. She sort of looks like she's always sort of loving, looking at him a little bit lovingly. Yeah, they do, don't they? they, yeah, look, they I mean, do. I don't know if they were, but they look quite happy together. <laughs> they do look um, quite happy together. <laughs> all in their sort of purple, well, pink, they're pink, maybe it was purple I imagine originally. it was probably, yeah, purple or yeah, bright red or something, some regal and, colour. Yeah, and holding their uh, orbs of yeah. gold. Um, and Mary has the scepter in her hand as well. And it's a, it's a really detailed picture of her face, actually, isn't mm. it? It's very... Uh, I don't know how accurate they, they, no. they did those pictures, but it's a very fine drawing. And, and then this lists all the order's properties that were to be it? returned. Um, but then she died, so, <laughs> so yeah. it didn't work out so well. But the, um, the intention was there. So how long so. did it revert just through the period of her reign until Elizabeth came on Yes, the and then it wasn't exactly that it was... It went into abeyance rather than being absolutely dissolved. So um, priors of England would continue to be appointed overseas, and actually on the wall of this room are the names of all the priors of England. And when you get to post-dissolution, you start looking at the ones in the, you know, in the certainly early 17th century, and they have all these, you know, Lomolino and um, Bovio and various names that really don't sound very English for the period. Yes. <laughs> um, so, uh, and in, as I say, in England, it just, it went into abeyance. So it was just, it didn't exist, really. But there wasn't some sort of out-and-out -out mm. rule. Elizabeth was much more tolerant. Yeah, around, yeah I think she was a pragmatist, things. wasn't she? She didn't want to make windows into men's souls, to quote her. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, but, but it was but, but the um, buildings were used for other reasons, weren't they? Yes, yes. So um, Elizabeth I leased the building. Actually, Henry VIII. There is an account that he used these buildings for um, storage, and it's for his tents and toils for hunting in the wars. So and also for the royal wardrobe. Wow. So I mean. You can just imagine the size of that. Given well, exactly, the the, and the sort of the tents that he would have taken on progress. So, and on you know all those various sort of jolly Absolutely. things that he did all around the country, sponging off his courtiers. Um, so that was the sort of stuff that was here. And then again for the royal wardrobe. So I mean, you know, he liked his clothes, didn't he? So, um, and he was a big chap. So that was what was stored here. I would love here. to have had a fertile around that wardrobe. Yeah, that's my all God, I can say. It'd be amazing, wouldn't it? <laughs> like Imelda Marcos. Um, so, um, Tudor of Belgium. <laughs> 
<laughs> so um, that was what was going on here. And then under Elizabeth I, the buildings were licensed to um, the Master of Revels, yes. who licensed Shakespeare's plays. So 30 of Shakespeare's plays were licensed for performance here. And I have this idea in my head that is probably highly inaccurate, but that this was like a sort of early Pinewood studios with, you know, set design and all this sort of business going on. I don't know if that's really true, but it makes for a good picture. Um, and um, so, you know, Shakespeare would have come here. And the Rebels office was here right up until, I think it was 1601. Okay. So quite a long... So pretty much most of Elizabeth's reign. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and Sir Edmund Tilney, who was the Master of Rebels, lived on the north side of St John's Square. And there was actually the um, Shakespeare's London Theatres project um, had done quite a lot of research into these buildings and trying to identify where things were. And there was a theatre that was near here too that was on St John's Street, or just off St John's Street, sort of opposite Waitrose today. Which <laughs> So only probably five or 600 metres from here. So... Um, there was all this sort of industry and a lot of interesting stuff that was going on in these buildings that's completely separate from the Order of St John, mm. but still has a really interesting narrative to British history and to Tudor history. time with us today but before we go I'd just like you to tell people about you know coming and visiting and how to get here and what they might want to see and what's going on as well because you've got some events going on through the summer as well. Yeah absolutely I'm more than happy to do the hard sell so <laughs> the museum is open from 10 to 5 Monday to Saturday 10 to 5 on Sundays in July, August and September. Um, if you log on to museumstjohn.org.uk or follow us on Facebook or Twitter and Instagram, it gives all the information about what the museum is doing. Um, we have an amazing programme of public events. Um, you can sign up for an e-newsletter on the main website. We won't pester you. We'll just send you a note about once a month telling you what we're up to. Uh, a few of the fun things that we've got going on shortly. We have family programmes all throughout the summer if you want to bring your kids, and most of those are free as well. Uh, we have a screening of um, A Man for All Seasons with a wonderful Tudor connection, which is happening in our 12th century crypt with a pub provided by the not-so-old Jerusalem Tavern, which is in... September, and I can't remember the exact date, but it's all on the website. We also have pub quizzes, and we have... What else have we got? We've got escape rooms happening next year, so that's something fun to think about. So, um, but you've also got your Henry VIII. We have. My God, I'm missing the most obvious thing that's happening. <laughs> Sorry, yes, which is happening throughout the summer, and you can book tickets through Eventbrite. It's all on the museum website in the correct link. It's really, really good fun, and Henry will tell you all about these buildings and his marriage troubles. Indeed, you can get a personally guided tour by yeah. Henry VIII himself. So I think that concludes our visit today. Thank you so much, Tom, for taking the time to show us all around. It's a pleasure, absolute pleasure. 
So that's a big thank you to Tom Folkes, director of the Museum of the Order of St John. I urge you to think about putting it on your itinerary for a future trip. It's just one of those delicious little hidden gems in London, which is well off the tourist trail. And I don't know about you, but I just love visiting those kind of places. And in case you need a reminder, the website is www.museumstjohn.org.uk and if you go to the events page, you'll find out about all the events that are taking place and it's through that page, of course, that you can also book your tickets to the Henry VIII tour and other things that are going on at the museum. So that's the end of the Tudor Travel Show Extra for this month, but we will be back, of course, in the month of July, so not too long at all. Thanks for joining me on this tour of the Museum of St John in Clerkenwell and London, and I hope you get a chance to visit for yourself very soon. Mm -hmm.